and welcome to Motopod, the internet radio show all about motorcycle road racing. This is episode number 710 for November 27th, 2022. The season is done, and I should say I have my co-host, Richard Jowett, over in the UK with us tonight as well. And we're actually finally able to meet up, Rich. I guess it's the first thing that we should actually say. We know we're late. We know we're terribly late. That's like a reference from Alice in Wonderland, right? Somebody was terribly late. But hopefully you guys will enjoy what we've got here. We're going to cover the racing from Valencia, the last one. We're then going to move to testing and talk about the one-day test. And then we're going to get to work trying to... Well, I'm going to get to work by leaving and going to Missouri for a week. Uh, Rich has been back from the States... Because you were over in Houston for work. Correct. I was. <laughs> so we've been sort of globe trotting. Only there's no racing to go with the globe trotting. But anyway, we want to thank everybody for for staying with us and being there and supporting the show. We want to be sure that we we thank Keith Kobach, Nick Saban, Scott Saunter, Alan Fleming, Dennis Kinding, Jeremy Woodwood, the people at Patreon, Rob Fertis, uh, Hudson Cooper, Josh Jattel, Carl Marshmonk, Gary, Steve. Paul Lang and Darren Andrews and Kyle Clark. Thank you guys for keeping up with the subscription to the show and everything else that you guys have helped us with is to keep the lights on, server fees, all that stuff. And with that, I think we'll go to the news, Rich. Yeah, not a huge amount of news at this time of year for obvious reasons. Because yeah, as you said, Jim, we're a little bit late coming to this show for various reasons. Although in some respects, <clears throat> excuse me, it's actually quite nice with the dust having settled over the last couple of weeks to sort of come back and have a chat about it and reflect yeah kind of reflect on it and uh, we'll get into a bit more of that in the off season i guess in terms of the season as a whole but uh, it's nice to sort of come back as i say after a couple of weeks and catch back up on things again now so just a, a few little bits of news tidbits really i spotted i don't know if you saw this jim but pedro costa was gifted a test run out well this was supposed to happen anyway on the rc16 moto gp bike I'm not quite sure if this goes back to him having won the Moto3 Championship the year before or whether he had a gentleman's agreement with the team. You're smiling you look as if you might know the backstory on this one. But anyway, unfortunately, it got rained off, so it didn't actually happen this time. But I guess it will happen at some point. I am shocked that it hadn't happened sooner. Well, quite, yeah. I look at it this way. If I'm Byra, I'm going to say I found my Mark Marquez in that kid. So if he said it comes up to me and says, Hey, I want to try the GP bike. Okay. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I pull one out of a truck. I don't, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Right. I, I give him as much experience as I can along the way to help him build his credential to getting there. But I want him to have that taste and I want to develop him. I think much like Mark Marquez had that extra year in moto two, and he just absolutely ran roughshod all over everybody. Yeah. You got to think Acosta may have a year maybe one more year in moto two because the kid needs to have his entire facets of setup of technique of racecraft all dialed in and then he's just going to burst onto that scene sort of like how marquez burst onto the moto gp scene right he had dominated mm -hmm. moto three or 125 at the time and then jumped on a moto two bike and you know had a little rough go at the beginning sort of sounds similar and then blasted down to the scene there and just won everything without any problem whatsoever hopped on a moto gp bike and made it all look easy and you almost think that this acosta is going to do the same thing now the we know that the ktm is not in the same place that the honda is but i think it's just interesting that they're giving him that taste i certainly would kind of greasing the wheels of keeping that relationship healthy i suppose isn't it to some extent and when i saw him off the bike and with his lid off over the course of the Valencia weekend, he's grown quite a bit because he's a young kid. I mean, and these young guys do grow suddenly, you know, they have these bursts. So 
But like you say, physically, he probably needs, well, he's in Moto2 next year anyway, but possibly one or two more years just to bulk up physically enough now that he's growing a bit taller and what have you. So, yeah, the problem is in MotoGP, there's just a logjam of not enough bikes. I mean, all the bikes are good now. It's not like the old days where you'd want to be on one of maybe six or eight bikes and the rest of them were second degree. <laughs> now they're all potentially race-winning bikes, aren't they, really? Let's be honest. Except for the Honda. Well, yeah, Of all true. the bikes, the Honda's the worst one, right? Currently, yes. I yeah, mean, Which you wouldn't think would happen, right? Well, I mean, imagine saying that a few years ago, that that's the situation that they'd be in. But, I mean, you know, that's the ebb and the flow of who does well and who doesn't, I suppose, in competitive, well, competitive sport, never mind motorsport. So, yeah, Costa is going to have trouble finding a slot, perhaps. But Or the other side of that coin, I guess, is even the likes of Fernandez, who hasn't even started his MotoGP career in earnest yet, I suspect will need to be looking over his shoulder. Because if Acosta wins the championship in Moto2 next year, what are KTM going to do? That is going to create a problem for them. I mean, presumably Miller's on a longish-term contract. Binder ain't going anywhere, that's for damn sure. I mean, the only other one, I suppose, is Paul Espargo, who is getting a bit long in the tooth, despite the fact he's probably only 30 years old or something. But yeah, what happens? Well, Paul will be shown the door and Mr. Acosta will be riding in the Tech 3 group. Unless Fernandez has an absolute uh, an absolute kind of mayor of a first year and just has to drop back down again, but who yeah. knows? Yep, so that's MotoGP news, right? Yeah. We'll talk about testing after we get done with MotoGP. We'll come to that. Yeah. So World Superbike finished up. They had what rounds in uh, Mandalika, and then the final race of the year was at PI, which I think is a great place to end a season. Yeah, seems like it'd be perfect, right? Yeah, I'm not going to go into it in too much detail because a uh, good friend of the show, Greg Haynes, who's now finished this season with Eurosport, uh, has said that he'll come back on and have a chat. People with reasonable memories might recall that Greg came on and we chatted about the first sort of third or so of the season. Managed even to turn that into about an hour and a half. So God knows what talking about the second half of the season is going to be like. But uh, <laughs> Greg and I will get together at some point over the next few weeks, all being well to talk about that. Mandalika, I mean, headline news was that they pulled the races forward uh, or the sessions forward, I should say, by a couple of hours. I think it was to try and avoid the rain. So it was kind of hot, dry as Mandalika is. Because that track doesn't really get used particularly, other than when MotoGP or World Superbikes in town, by the looks of it. Very, very dirty tracks. So on Friday, Lecoma went down hard, broke his back, or damaged a couple of vertebrae in his back. He's okay. I'm pretty sure, I didn't see it, but I'm pretty sure Baldazari in Supersport had a similar crash. So if you went offline by just a matter of a few centimetres, you know, you were having kind of rear ends coming around, under braking, and God knows what. So it was sketchy conditions. But through all of the melee, Batista, as we thought was going to happen, wrapped up the title. So he went into the final round at Phillip Island as the champion. Phillip Island, I mean, it's arguably the best bike track in the world, question mark, debate. You know, Mugello, we can argue that one out another time, but PI is such a great place. But at this time of year, obviously, the weather is a massive factor. And if anybody hasn't seen the Sunday morning Super Pole race, I just encourage you to go and watch 10 laps of absolute craziness because that was... A wet track in the sense it was pretty damp with some rivers flowing across it. Ten lap dash, but it was windy there. Sun came out. So most people started on wet. One person started on slicks. And it was just, you know, what would happen? So I won't spoil it, but perhaps we'll talk about that on the next show, Jim, when we get together again. So that's the Phillip Island uh, Super Pole race, which is the short race on the Sunday morning. If you can go and find that one online somewhere, it's probably on YouTube now. That's a, a, a great watch. I don't think there's really anything else much to say about was Superbike that I won't pick up with Greg in a few weeks' time, other than the piece of news that might not make you so happy, Jim. Yeah, <laughs> off you go with this one. <laughs> it's the will he, won't he of Danilo Petrucci. 
And is he going to come back and ride on the Warhorse Ducati in Moto America? Is he going to go to World Superbike? It was back forth, back forth. I mean, honestly, people, I don't think this was ever really a question, but he won't. Petrucci is going to World Superbike and he's doing it with the, is it Barney? How did they Barney. That one? Barney. Okay. thought it might've been a hard eye there at the end. Um, so he's going to race the Barney team on a Ducati on another Pentagalli, which is interesting. I think Petrucci will do really well in World Superbike. I think he'll be at near the front kind of a thing but you know for those fans of moto america you kind of get a replacement for petrucci and the fact that cambobier is coming back to take on the reins and shake up the mantle of chasing a title another title there so that's going to be interesting uh we do know in world superbike that well I should say this. I'll lead into this, Rich, and you tell me whether you think this is true or not, because you, mm-hmm. you follow BSB much closer than myself. But BS, it says that BSB champion Bradley Ray is going to World Superbike. Now, we just found out that former Motor America writer Greg Gerloff is leaving, was leaving Yamaha. I think Bradley Ray is going to take that spot, going to take Gerloff's spot. No? No, those seats oh. are already accounted for. Oh, they're accounted for. Okay. Yeah, right. so there's another Yamaha team, and I'm sorry, the name of the team escapes me at the moment. Is it so I'll have to No. Okay. I can't think. The tidbits I kind of had gleaned was that he might be, and again, I'm a little bit on the fence if this is the case, but don't quote me on this. Uh, this is just something I heard when he popped up at Portimao, and there was some talk with him being in the paddock that weekend, because he had just secured the BSB Championship at that point. So obviously World Superbike is where you want the champions to go to, if at all possible. And there was some talk about him being involved in what they described as a limited program of World Superbike. From that, I take to mean perhaps not taking part in every single round, maybe on the European rounds. Don't know. That might be way off the mark. And hopefully that wouldn't be the case because, yeah, as the reigning British champion, you'd hope that he would you know, get a good ride and a full season. But we've debated this one enough without needing to go back into it now. His seat in BSB has now just been taken by another rider, which I'll mention in a moment. So he's not going to be back at the same team sort of mixing BSB and a bit of World Superbike. So I think we're just waiting for the announcement as to where he's going in World Superbike and what the terms of that deal are going to be. As I say, hopefully it's a full season, Jim, but don't know at the moment. That news hasn't come out. So we'll just have to sit tight and wait and watch the World Superbike news feed. Hmm. Okay. Well, I thought for sure maybe he, he was going to get Gerloff's ride. No, Domi Agata is up to that team. Uh, as the reigning World Supersport champion. And I'm just trying to think, oh, that's where Remy Gardner is, is going into that team. So Remy effectively replaces Gerloff in yeah, that okay. squad. And then the Japanese rider who they had, who was called Nazane, I'm not sure where he's going. I assume he'll go back to the Japanese championship. Oh, no, actually, no, Nazane, bizarrely, I think he's turning up in Moto2 next year, I read somewhere. Hmm. No Japanese Moto2, that works. Didn't see that one coming, but because uh, he hasn't done anything in World Superbike to kind of suggest that that would be a, a natural place for him to go. But yeah, so that team is... Uh, that Gerloff has departed is is Agata and Gardner. Hmm. But there are other Yamaha squads on the yeah. grid. And indeed, you know, the Petrucci move, I mean, the Barney Racing Ducati squad, with all due respect to them, are not a team that's troubled the podium at virtually any point during their, their entry, as far as I can recall. Not on World Superbike, anyway. They might have done more in the lower categories. But Petrucci is a proven race winner in MotoGP and will probably go pretty well on what's going to be a, a pretty awesome bike because Ducati has launched yet another sort of special... Panigale, hmm. uh, which will be homologated for the championship next year, no doubt, with more power, etc., etc. So it's going to be the bike to be on, and he is a good rider. 
despite the fact that he's going to make that bike look like a kid's toy, I should think, because the Panigale is a pretty small bike and he's quite quite a big guy. So he's going to crowd that bike a bit. But I suppose that was the case in, in Moto America this year. But I'm kind of, what do you feel about this, Jim? I'm kind of sad that he's not going back for another crack at Moto America because I would have thought with the season under his belt, despite the fact there was a lot of trash talk early in the season when he sort of turned up and didn't like some of what he saw, that seemed to ebb away as the season went on, didn't it? As he got perhaps a bit more used to the series there. But I kind of, it would have been nice to see him go back and have another crack. Selfishly, I'd say I would like to have seen Petrucci come back and be on the Ducati because he'd be running against Gagne again and you had Bobier back. And Bobier is back on a BMW, okay? Mm. So if you have those three guys running at the front, it's three guys that are equal in talent and equipment to be at the front. Mm. And I think you had to throw, ah, this. don't quote me on this one, but I think Heron is going to superbike with Warhorse Ducati. He's not going to ride the super sport bike. He's going to ride just the superbike. So you had four guys that would be at the front, which would have been very nice yeah. to see, but... I get where Petrucci's coming from. Just the the level of what he's used to and the level he was at, you have to look at it from his standpoint and be like, why do I want to muck around here if I can have a World Superbike ride? And maybe, yeah. you know, a couple of things. One, if if you like, if you uh, were a racer, I'll use this, I'll use the Matt Maladin example. Matt Maladin liked the United States. Now he's an Aussie. He came over here, he raced, he made really good money and he liked America. He liked traveling around in America. So if you do, if you're liking that, then stay. But I think Petrucci doesn't see it that way. I think he still wants to sort of travel the world and mm. do his racing thing. I, I I don't think it's like an ego thing at all with Petrucci. He's too down to earth for that. But you, you get some people, notables of this is more the F1 guys, the F1 car guys. Because they like on their passport occupation, F1 driver, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, they do, right? They do. So there's, I think there's a, a few MotoGP slash World Superbike guys who like that idea that on their passport, it says World World Superbike rider, or World uh, MotoGP rider, something to that effect. Yeah. Right? Personally, I think it's a bit of a shame he doesn't come back and have another go now that he's got a gear under his belt. But with a World Superbike on the table... It was always going to be the World Superbike that he went for, particularly because he'll be racing at tracks that are more to his taste, let's say, in terms of layout and facilities and safety, etc., etc. Having been in a MotoGP paddock for so long, I mean, it's not a criticism of the guy. It's just what he's been used to. I think what may have may have been the defining characteristic is that he had such a hard time making the Ducati work at racetracks here in America. American racetracks here get used a tremendous amount. And they get used by cars. Yeah. So it constantly creates the ripples and bumps and the pavement moves. And it costs a lot of money to pave a racetrack. And I think, I don't know this to be true. I'll leave, I'll leave the UK BSB circuits out of this conversation because I know that they're somewhat sketchy and more in line with what's here in the US. But the Grand Prix level, World Superbike level circuits are billiard table smooth maybe minimal bumps as opposed to the bigger chatter bumps and stuff that you have going into corners here in the U S and whatnot. Yeah. And I think it just wasn't the biggest stage is what he wanted to play on. And if you couldn't make the bike work and you're frustrated by that, which is really kind of where Petrucci was because you know, in the, in the few races that I went to, they were throwing everything but the kitchen sink at the bike to make it work and they couldn't get it to work. And you know, the Ducati isn't 
designed particularly for Dunlap tires. It's designed for a Pirelli and it's designed for a smoother racetrack like that exists in Europe and other parts of world level racing in the world. So you put all that together. And I think Petrucci was just destined to say, nah, I'm going to go back over there. And, and I guess, Jim, the other point, just to finish off on this one, is that he was kind of like the lone Ducati out there as well, wasn't he? So not really lots of other people helping to gather data to overcome perhaps some of the setup or technical difficulties that they were facing. And with all due respect, again, I keep saying that tonight, but all due respect to the Moto America Championship, you know, you could never accuse it in the last few years or this year of being a, a massive strength in depth field. So, you know, he probably just wants to go and get his elbows out and rough it up with 20 riders rather than constantly sort of racing the same two or three people, which is basically what he was doing all year when it was Gagne, Peterson and Skoltz, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yep. Those were the four guys you didn't really see or hear about anybody else much. So, yeah, I can understand the, the decision. So, and it'll be great to be in the championship because he's quite a character, isn't he? So, it's a, it's a big win for World Superbike to have him in there. Um, we've spoken about Bradley Ray. Uh, just one other piece of World Superbike kind of news. It's part of the PI weekend. But uh, again, people that have been following the career of Eugene Laverty for a number of years will realize that that was his last. Uh, race weekend as a racer he is actually become going to become a well i think he's going to become the team manager or certainly part of the management of the the novo bmw team that he's raced for for the last couple of seasons uh unfortunately i mean he's a guy that tended to beat himself up quite badly he got in i don't know what happened it didn't show on tv but he hooked up one other rider and went down at turn one at pi which is not a good corner to crash at turn one at phillip island Went barrel rolling, presumably through the gravel, and unfortunately ended up with a fractured pelvis, I think it was, and some other bone-related injury. He's safe. You know, he's in hospital, he's healing. He'll be fine in the fullness of time uh, and ready to take up his duties once he gets into that management position when World Superbike kicks off again, I guess in March. It'll be sometime next year. So just a slightly sad end to a guy that finished runner-up, I think, in World Supersport a couple of times, Jim, and was runner-up in World Superbike one season. He's had a long career in World Superbike, actually, usually in Aberdeen. He's been at the top for, for a, you know, a decent chunk of that time. So, great racer. Sad to see him off the grid, but he hadn't been turning in many great results. And so, I think probably it was the right time to retire. Uh, so, that was just the last little bit of news there. Rip through a little bit of BSB. Uh, a bit of a flurry of rider announcements uh, just over the last week or so. So, Christian Eden, who's been working away on a Suzuki and BSB this year, has managed to get himself Tommy Broadwell's old seat on the Oxford Products Ducati team. That is a good team setup. It's a single bike. Iden spent two seasons, I think it was two seasons, on the Paul Bird Motorsport Ducati. Uh, was sort of unceremoniously dumped out of that team. And I think a lot of people felt quite wrongly. I certainly thought he was very, very badly treated. But they had Josh Brooks already there and then the returning Tom Sykes from World Superbike. So there was a bit of a sort of a, of a shuffle up uh, that occurred around that. And Iden kind of found himself, you know, stood up when the music stopped a little bit, I think. But, you know, all good things come to those who wait, as they say. So that Ducati ride is is a really great team. And I think Iden will go really well on that bike next year because he has form on the Ducati that we saw from the PBM seasons. And that whole team will, will basically revolve around him. So that's him. Uh, Jason O'Halloran staying on for, I think, what will be his fifth or sixth season at the McCann's Yamaha squad. A consistent 
championship challenger seems to be quite unlucky as seasons round out in fact there's a piece of news that isn't on the list here jim which i must make a note to come back to so that's o'halloran ryan vickers who has been on the fayho racing bmw peter hickman's teammate this year very poor season i think he'd be the first to admit it hasn't gelled with that bmw he's the guy that's moving across to take bradley ray's place in the renamed omg racing team the rich energy sponsorship name which was the energy drink which has been a name surrounded by controversy ever since it came out for one reason or another that seems to have disappeared more of the team sort of signage the accounts you see on social media and stuff might need to talk to dave neil about that at some point anyway so he's going to be on the omg yamaha so the title winning bike from this year uh, Andy Irwin quickly is back into the Honda team, having been on a BMW for the last season or so. Danny Buchan stays on the Synetic BMW. So that's the kind of rider news for people that follow BSB. One other very sad piece of news is a rider called Keith Farmer. This is probably two or three weeks ago now, but certainly since we last had a show, Jim. So Keith Farmer, periodically in BSB, but a serial championship winner in Superstock, had just retired just over a season ago. Um, having been sort of beaten himself up in various crashes and I think had a youngish family and just decided he was going to focus on other motorsport related things. Um, just very unexpectedly passed away. I don't know exactly why. I'm guessing it's kind of like this sudden death syndrome thing that you hear about from time to time. People just pass away for no obvious reason. Young guy, very, very fit. Okay, beating himself up in crashes over the years with broken limbs and various bits and pieces like that, as happens. But no doubt had retired and was looking forward to a long you know, successful life in and around other forms of, of the sport, whether it be management or rider training or coaching or whatever. Super guy, uh, Irish lad. And yeah, just very, very sad that just like that just passed away. So we send out our heartfelt condolences to the family, friends and anybody that knew him from a team perspective. Didn't Farmer race the TT? Yeah, he, he was on the roads a, a fair bit. But pretty sure, yeah, certainly Northwest 200, yeah. Right. Pretty sure I remember the name from, from the TT. Don't ever remember him winning a TT, but I think he's been on a podium or two. And there was another rider, Jim, called Mark Farmer, who you oh. might also be thinking of. Now, I don't think I did they not were know related. That. Okay. So we'd need to go back and check on that a little bit. Certainly, Keith had been racing in the BSB paddock for, well, certainly since the early 2010 through that decade, mm. for sure. Uh, and had won the 1,000cc Superstock Championship twice, I think, uh, at least, uh, certainly twice. So, yeah, another uh, after having lost Chrissy Rouse in a racing accident a few weeks back, as you'll recall, very, very sad to lose another young guy that was uh, in and around the paddock constantly. So, yeah, that's a little bit of a bum note to finish on there. But one other thing that I didn't write down, and I won't try and go into this in too much detail now because I won't have the powers of mental recall to remember the detail, but BSB have just announced quite a big shake-up as to the way that they're going to score points throughout the season. So they haven't got rid of the showdown. But it is going to be run over two rounds, not the three or four or five as it's been over the last seasons, let's say. I don't know what you're going to feel about this, Jim. I'm a little bit... mm. They still don't want to have people winning the championship with four rounds to go. Okay, fair enough. Everybody likes a big build-up to a final round at Brands Hatch, which is where the season always, always ends up. So they are reducing the number of points and the gap between the points that you score from first through to 15th. So you can't get as big a advantage as the season goes on if you're winning lots of races, uh, let's say. So I think if you come first, I think it's like 18 points. And then if you come second, it's 15 points. So it's not such a big spread of points. 
as you get to the penultimate round, that will still be the showdown, but it doesn't exclude anybody. So everybody can still win, basically. So in the penultimate round, you're going to score 25 for the win. And then in the final round of rounds, you're going to score 35 for the win. So I'll try and figure all of this out and we'll talk about it in a bit more detail uh, on the next show or two. Is it contrived? Well, yeah. 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 Very the showdown contrived. was a contrivance anyway. And it was really all down to, I mean, for people with again, long memories like us oldies, 2009, I think it was, where we were right on the back of the, the big financial crash that happened at that time. And you had Leon Camia uh, and James Ellison on the Airwaves Yamaha bikes in BSB. And I mean, nobody could touch them. A lot of other teams had either scaled back or dropped out because of the financial situation that happened that year. And Camia had wrapped up the you know the title by like halfway through the season. And that's what prompted the showdown to come in so that that couldn't happen again. And indeed, it hasn't happened again, but it is a contrivance of a, of a sort. But they've, you know, in fairness to BSB and to give them due credit, they've looked at the fact that, again, there's a lot more strength and depth now. And the format of the showdown being as extreme as it has, has, I think, become a bit unpopular as the years have gone on, although people have got used to it and accepted that that's the way it is. And it's the same for everybody. That's for sure the case. But they're looking to just shake up the points and the way that the showdown works. So you still get the same result, you know, in terms of a big build-up and hopefully the series going down to the wire in terms of the last race of the last weekend. Um, we'll see how it goes. Let's say I'll try and write down what they're doing in a bit more detail and we'll talk about it next time, mate. Yeah, I think uh, I need to see how that's going to be done before I'll make a comment. Yeah. I mean, I kind of get where they're going, but... Uh, you know, the purest of me says, nope, every race counts and every race is an equal amount. But yeah, eh, you know, there was a little bit like Bernie in Formula One a few years ago, wanted them to score 50 points at certain races, wasn't it? You know, and stuff like that. And they did do it, didn't they? They did do it. Yep. Abu Dhabi, the double Dhabi. So you got 50 points to win. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. I, I think you can contrive it any way that you want. And this is the only point I'll make right now. You can put any kind of restrictions or whatever on it. But the fast guys who win will always be at the top. They will always come to the top. Primoz rises. Yeah. Primoz rises. With that, let's uh, let's go talk about the last race for MotoGP in Valencia. Find out who won everything. Well, you guys all know what happened. We're just going to kind of give you our take on what we saw, the interesting points of it. So let's go to Moto3. The title was already decided. Guevara was world champion. The interesting thing was the question was, could he win all four races in Spain? So that was up for play for him. But in qualifying, we had in the first round, Sasaki, Mino, Munoz, Masia, Toba, and Toba, and Kelso were also were all in that first qualifying session. Toba and Masia were in a bit of a dust-up. Sort of some fisticuffs happened after Toba thought he'd been wronged by Masia. And quite honestly, yeah, I got to kind of believe that Masia wasn't wrong on that one. But uh, they wound up having a little dust up. And then off camera, they had an even bigger dust up, which negated them. I think there was like five. There was a penalty. There was a fine of, I thought, 5,000 euros. It's generally normally around about that sort of level, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was like, I think it was like 5,000 euros. Don't quote me on that one. But they, they each had a fine they had to pay. And they were starting from pit lane. So it didn't matter where they were. They were, they were going to be where they were going to be. But Sasaki, Masia, Munoz, and uh, Carrera all got through to the second qualifying session. At that point, Sasaki went down at turn 14, about halfway through. Suzuki, uh, Yamanaka, Guevara, Anshu, and McPhee were all at your top halfway in. But when dust settled, Guevara would be on pole, followed by Anshu, then Garcia, and Sasaki, or- and Ortella. So that, or, and Morera was in there, sorry. It was Garcia, Morera, Sasaki, and Ortella. The race. The race was interesting from the fact that Guevara got the whole shot and Anchi went with him. And then 
pretty much that's all that happened was the fact that Anchu stalked Guevara the whole way. Like you kept on thinking that Anchu was going to dive by either in turn one, and that's where I thought he was going to do it at first. But then you, you, if you watched the drive that the gas, there's the same bike, but the drive that the gas gas would get out of the last corner would just put enough of a gap that Anchu could not get by. Which, if they're the same bike, why isn't the KTM as fast as the gas gas? Which goes back <laughs> to what we think, or their speculation is that people are playing with the ignition timing. Or maybe they're playing a little bit with the ECUs and that there's a little bit of cheating going on here. And the way Matt Bird was talking about it was that Anchu has been complaining about this all year. Like, look, I, the gas gas has out dragged me. I can't, I'm lucky to be able to stay in the draft. Now, given Anchu, you thought for sure he'd either A, have tossed the bike down the road. Or once he did toss the bike down the road, he would have taken Guevara with him. I actually believe that this might have been the best race you've seen Anchu actually race. Like great. <laughs> From the simple standpoint that Anchu kept it together until he got down to the very last lap. And he, he uh, let me back up here just a little bit. Once he realized that Anchu couldn't draft by or get anywhere near close going into one, you started thinking about where else is Anchu going to pass? <laughs> right? Where's the dive bomb coming from? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> You're thinking it might have been two because Anchu was very good on the brakes. Let's, let's be honest. Anchu's strength is on the brakes. So I was thinking it'd be two or he was going to leave it all the way to, is it 13 where you go, I was 13 the last turn? Yeah, that was Nicky Hayden. 14. It will always be Nicky Hayden coming, well, yeah. me, that one. Yeah. coming over the brow there. Right. You come over the brow and you're into, I think it might be, I think that's 13 is over the brow. 14 might be the last turn. Could be, yeah. yeah. It's where Casey Stoner beat Ben Spees in the drag race to the line. That's how I always look at that corner. <laughs> yeah, just to show you how old I am. Okay. Anyway, so aren't you... Keeps his powder dry until the last lap. And you know it's coming somewhere. It wasn't two. He did it at eight, which was an amazing move. I, I It was one of the best moves I've seen because Guevara did not expect it at that point. Guevara was covering everywhere where he figured Anchi would go. And to Anchi's credit, he suckered Guevara into that because everywhere that Guevara covered was a place that Anchi had tried. Or would show him a wheel or at least be to the inside of him or be near him. So quite honestly, Anchi was running one of the smartest races that he ever did. But that bit that they went through when Guevara, or sorry, when Anchi got by Guevara at eight. And basically it was right back again. And they traded and rode side by side from eight all the way around over the brow corner at 13 to 14. It was Anchi's last try. Guevara covered off the inside because he knew he gets better drive. Anchu, I thought, did a smart thing. He tried to run around the outside and try to maintain some momentum to get maybe stay in the draft, but it wasn't enough. He got out accelerated. Guevara would win the race, win all four races in Spain. I think I know another kid that did that once, but <laughs> yeah. Mm, yeah. Anyway. What happened to him? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever happened to him. I haven't heard much out of him after a while. <laughs> and then Anchu would wind up finishing second. Now, there was some decent racing in the pack. You did get to see a little bit of it. But it wasn't as good as what was going out front. The, the whole stocking thing was definitely what you were waiting for, what you were looking for. But the, the Sergio Garcia, Fajas, Sasaki, Fernandez, and Munoz battle was really pretty good. They traded it around. They were you know passing around into two, three, four, that area there. Fajas was always in the back of the pack and actually rode himself up to fourth. Garcia had, was punted out wide at some point <laughs> along the way. And he rode back through to finish on the podium in third. 
which was a good deal. So that is the that there was like I said, there was really nothing to race for. Guevara already had the title. Garcia was going to be second in the championship. We knew that. But your top ten from that race was Guevara, Anshu Garcia, Fajas, Sasaki Fernandez, Munoz, Marrera, Yamanaka, and Hole Gardo for the Moto Three race. Rich, do you have any little tidbit you'd like to add in to? that race only uh, sort of a low-key 11th place finish for john mcphee in his final race in moto 3 and presumably in the moto gp paddock at least for the time being again we don't know what his plans for 23 are as yet i suppose there's an outside chance he might land somewhere in moto 2 um although i think most of the plum rides are already accounted for in that series so I, as we've speculated before i think probably world super sport is the most likely place for him to end up so that was john mcphee it was a very emotional weekend for him Again, I didn't get to see sort of all of the stuff because it was on very, very early in the morning because I was in Houston at the time. Hey, welcome to my world. Uh, yeah, sympathies. Yes, <laughs> life is a lot easier <laughs> in Europe. That's for damn sure. Um, <laughs> I think there was quite a few tears, uh, not with me, with him, um, in terms of, you know, finishing off with that team. What else was there? Yeah, just kind of like felt to me a little bit like with Guevara and Omtu being so far out front. Guevara, we know, is the champion. He's going up to Moto2 next year. Going to be super interesting to see how quickly he adapts to the Moto2 bike because we were having the same discussion about a certain Pedro Acosta this time last year, Jim. And mm-hmm. whilst Acosta's had a very good first season in Moto2, I think that's clear. It, perhaps not quite as stellar as we thought it might be. But Guevara, I think, is at least as much of a talent as Acosta is. But will he just be one of those guys that makes the change and makes the, the jump to ride on a Moto2 bike quickly? Like some people just, it's like a switch, isn't it? And where other people take quite a bit of time. And then there are a few who just never, uh, like your Della Porters, you, you know, they just never quite, for one reason or another, they just never quite make the, the change. So, yeah, and Onchu, the only thing I just really wanted to say about him was, you know, he's moving to the IO squad next year. Mm. That was a very mature performance. I mean, again, he came second. I was like, oh, please, just let this guy win a race at long last. And he didn't manage it. But he rode a very mature race. Uh, had a good go on the final lap. He's a big, physically, he's getting a bit big for a Moto3 bike, and that's his big problem. Although Guevara's not a small guy by any stretch of the imagination, but I think Omchu has pointed this out as a problem. So I think he's only got one season to go now in Moto3. But I think yeah, he's going to be good next year. And that, with Akiayo, you know, helping him to perhaps manage his approach mentally, which I think mm-hmm. has perhaps been a, the question mark that we've picked out and highlighted on numerous occasions in the past, although much less this year, to be fair to the guy. I think next year, this might be just the final bit of the jigsaw puzzle that kind of everything then clicks into place. So I'm excited for Ron Chief for next year. Yep. So the top three riders in the championship, Guevara, Garcia, and Fagia, all moved to Moto2. Yeah. I think now it's much harder to move from a Moto3 bike to Moto2 bike because of the Triumph engine. When it was a 600 Honda, I don't think that was as big as a jump as what you have now. And again, that's sort of why I've kind of said, hey, what if you build a Moto3 bike that's a twin cylinder 500, give these guys a little bit more, you know, still have a Moto3 bike as far as, hey, uh, the CEV, uh, Italian National, um, you know, that kind of thing. You could do a Moto3 sort of, I don't want to call it a support race, but like a, like Red Bull rookies, you could have that in a MotoGP weekend in Europe if you wanted to have another race. You could do that, use Moto3 bikes for that. But I, I really like the idea of there being a slightly more displacement. Yeah, and it doesn't make a lot of sense that the Moto2 bike has got bigger in capacity and the Moto3 bike hasn't. I mean, if you're going to do that, you need to kind of close that gap again, I think. And as you say, there is, and we 
mentioned this several times in the past, as you've just pointed out, as they come up through the respective talent cups nationally or into the, the sort of the mini kind of European championships like the CV or whatever, the fact that they're riding the same machinery, I think is a bit of a problem when they come into the MotoGP paddock. It needs to be something that gives them a bit more of a challenge and a bit of a step up. So, I mean, obviously, it's a step up coming into the MotoGP paddock. Of course it is. I mean, it's, it's the World Championship, for goodness sake. But, yeah, I, I think, as you say, Jim, it is more of a challenge now. I don't think there's, there's obviously more electronics now than there ever mm-hmm. was on the 600s. So a lot more setup to get into. So it's naturally going to take a rider a lot longer. And we've seen this with Pedro Acosta, haven't we? I mean, unfortunately, yeah. we missed that vital middle part of the season when he bust his leg in a training accident. If it hadn't been for that, I mean, he might well have been a contender for this championship as the year went on. Because the... The front end crashes disappeared as the year went on. By the time he got to Le Mans, when he got that first, did he win Le Mans? Yes, he did. By the time he got uh, to that, kind of, no, that was the crash. He binned it. He was leading he and he binned, binned it. it, and then right. he won. And then he, the he won race. the next race. Something like that, but it kind of he just got past that little mental hurdle with front end of the bike, I think, in terms of mm-hmm. how hard to push, uh, and obviously with the tires as well. And since then, he was brilliant, and it was only the fact that he busted his, you know, the biggest bone in the body, I think it was, wasn't it? He, yeah, Brooks femur. Yeah. Compound fracture of the femur, I think. I don't know. No, just a fracture of the femur. Took him out for quite a while. And if it hadn't been for that, I think he probably would have been podiuming a lot more. And obviously when he did come back, it took him a race or two to get back into fitness and one thing and another. So yeah, and next year, Acosta, we need to keep an eye on for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, well, in Moto3, it's in good hands. Uh, I think with Munoz and Morera, those two kids are definitely on the come. Yeah. And you've got you've got Anchu and um, Suzuki and sasaki all there as well so yep. i do think it, and there will be somebody else who's gonna you know come in and surprise so we shall see what happens it happens there. every year doesn't it yeah and you know massia going back to leopard i mean that's going to be an interesting yeah. one to watch because <laughs> yeah, i mean he yeah. flip-flops around the teams doesn't he that guy again <laughs> yeah. doesn't have too many years in moto 3 to go i don't think before teams start to abandon him so yeah i can't wait for moto 3 next year but then i say that every year <laughs> yeah let's go to moto 2 so on the line is the title. It is Agura versus Fernandez for that title. Quickly looking at it from a qualifying idea, uh, Vietti, Arbolino, Roberts, Bowman, Schneider, and Schroeder are all in that first session. Uh, I don't think there's anything there. We, we expect Vietti to be there along the way. He somehow always seems to be there. And then it was it was Vietti, Arbolino, uh, Gonzalez, and Roberts. And uh, Roberts had had a crash and he had a map issue on the bike. So for him to get out of there, he had one final run to go and make uh, it good. He had got to third, if I remember correctly, but then Gonzalez actually pimped him at the end, uh, which was good for Roberts. I thought that was kind of, you know, pressure was on and he mm. performed. You got the second qualifying session. Uh, Acosta had gone to the pole, but L- Lopez pipped him by a thousandth of a second. You cannot blink that. Fast, no. <laughs> which was pretty pretty wild to be there. So it was um, Fernandez, Arbolino, Agura, and uh, Roberts there as well. So pretty crazy to finish that out. So we got into the race. Now I will ask you this question, Rich. They showed the grid. They showed the riders. They showed a lot. They spent a lot of time with a camera on Agura. To me, Agura looked very pensive. Did you feel that? Did you feel like he had the? I looked at it that he felt the weight of the world on his shoulders and he was still not over the mistake of Sepang. I, I that's what I felt. I don't know how you see that. I thought at any moment he could have vomited into his crash helmet, to be honest with you. He looked perfect, yes. Really, <laughs> really kind of sick with the pressure and the expectation of it all. 
which is totally understandable for a guy in his position, you know, because there's a lot of pressure from Honda on his shoulders as well. Let's not forget. I mean, he is generally seen as the next Japanese rider that is likely to do something good for Honda. Now that I think we can reasonably safely say that Nakagami is not going to be the guy. So Agira does have a lot of pressure. And I mean, I just thought what he did, as we discussed post Sepang, I just thought that was idiotic what he did there. So he put so much pressure on himself going into Valencia. I kind of thought that he was going to choke in the race before the race even happened. And yeah, as you say, his body language on the grid gave every signal that he was not looking in the right frame of mind at all. No, you know, I thought he was going to pull this off. I thought Fernandez was going to kind of be the other on the other side. He was going to be the guy that was going to choke. Right. It's kind of how I felt it was going to be because mm. I kind of see to, to me how Fernandez is. He seems to be in the pressure. He's always in the back. And I thought, but he rides to the front. I was like, oh, do you have that in you one more time? I don't know. I think it's going to get in your head. You didn't have the greatest. You had a better qualifying session than you usually do. So, okay, you're going to do a little bit better here. But I really thought that it was the other way around. I was completely wrong on this one. But when the race took off, it was Lopez and Acosta and Arbolino and Agura. They were all out front. Then Aldegur and Fernandez. The race out front is pretty decent race with Arbolino and Agura. They're kind of back at it. Acosta showed patience. Sort of bedded tires in a little bit, if you will. Kind of let the fuel load burn off the front so that the front handles a little bit better. Again, we were talking about the maturity we saw in Anju. You, you kind of saw the maturity here in this race with Acosta. Yeah. It was the same thing kind of rolling around here. There was a very good little battle that happened between uh, Acosta and Agura. They went back and forth at turn one to turn two to turn three just cutting each other up it was pretty crazy because because they had gotten past arbolino at that point and then you get to the big moment of the race 18 laps to go heading to turn eight and agura tossed it away looking almost carbon copy of sepang way too deep way too late you know you can see it you know it's coming front end (laughs) folds and away he goes now this is where you're all going. Yeah, Jim's going to rant about a starter motor on, on a Moto two bike. Uh, no, it wouldn't. It wouldn't help. Time, that, Jim. Bike, <laughs> that bike was trashed. There was no way. There yeah. was no way picking that bike back up was going to do anything because he had flung it into the gravel. I think the handlebar dug in and it just vaulted that bike and it was a piece of garbage when it was done. There was no starter motor going to help there at <laughs> all. Uh, but that was it. Championship over. No matter where Fernandez would, where it was to finish, he just had to simply cross the line. But the interesting part was that he actually rode a great race then because he latched onto the back of Acosta and those two rode home in single file to give the IO boys a one-two finish. I don't know how you saw this. This is my take on it. I think Acosta had a way more in the tank because yeah. anytime, anytime Fernandez got close, because I think Fernandez is like, okay, I've got the championship. It doesn't matter. If I fall off trying to win this race, I'm still world champion, right? Nobody could pass me in that. And I think you saw him being Fernandez, put his head down a little bit and kind of push on Acosta and Acosta just kick it up just that little bit more each yeah. time. I think Acosta had him covered, Jim, but also I'm oh, sure yeah. that slightly in the back of Fernandez's head was the first run out on the MotoGP bike, what? Four to eight hours later, so I don't suppose with the championship in the bag, yeah, he wanted to win, but I think being fit and healthy for what the Tuesday when he got his first run out on the on the MotoGP bike was probably 
more in his head than anything else because you know he's got he's been around for quite a while as um fernandez augusto fernandez i always have to think which one is he is he <laughs> adrian raul or oh it's gonna be a nightmare next year again but but he's he's a very sort of mature thinking kind of a rider he's not prone to rash kind of actions as a general rule, although we did see him get into a bit of fisticuffs with somebody a round or two ago, didn't we? Because he got that conduct warning, if you remember, for the way yeah. he was behaving on the bike. So, but yeah, I mean, Acosta had him absolutely covered. And not that I've ever been a racer. You know more about this than I do, Jim. But I'm sure from Acosta's point of view, heading into 2023, having won the last race of 2022, that does count for quite a lot, I think. So he was just going to win that race no matter what, I think. I think there's a bit of foreshadowing to what may potentially happen next year. Yeah. I do so hope that Ayagura can put a fight up, but I think Acosta's the better qualifier than Agura, in my opinion. In my yeah. opinion. I think, you know, there's more of a chance that, like, I don't know, let me rephrase this. Acosta's bad days are not going to be as bad as the bad days that Agura has. Yeah, I think, that, well, I think that's fair based on what we've seen. Yeah. But Acosta wins. Great day for Acosta. Uh, foreshadowing of what the future holds for that young man. Fernandez, his teammate, finished second. He is the world champion. Arbolino, third. The concept of an Arbolino-Acosta-Ayagura battle for a championship, or just for race wins, to be honest with you, is yeah, a bit yeah. tantalizing in Moto2. Yeah. Uh, Outiger was fourth. Reyn is fifth. Gonzalez, Dixon, Alcoba. And how about a big shout out to Senna? I, I guess, I believe that's how it's pronounced. Yes. Right? Yeah. I guess. He substituted for <laughs> the Brits. Sorry. Sam Lowe's. Sam Lowe's. Thank you. I just blanked out there for a second, guys. Uh, he substituted for Sam Lowe's. I thought that kid for really not. He had a Moto2 ride in the CEV. Or well, I think so. And he did sub for Lowe's earlier in the season as yes. well. So he's had some experience. Mm. But still. But nevertheless. Yeah. Great ride to show up in the world stage. Uh, again, uh, granted, he had done it earlier, but you're on a track you know, and he did very well there, I yeah. thought. And Charter was the 10th man. So shout out to Igus. And then with that, we move to the world championship standings. Fernandez will win the world champion, or did win the world championship. Sorry. Iger was second. Kenneth, who fell during the race, which seems like Kenneth falls. Imagine that. Much as Viet- Him and Vietti seem to be like they start out great and then they just simply. <sighs> all the way i don't hard to understand really yeah i don't understand that one but Kinnett, then arbolino who got close to Kinnett <laughs> to finish fourth so then dixon vietti lopez roberts and chantra are your top 10 in the championship yeah i'm not too sure what's going to happen with roberts i think that that's the ship may have sailed i think he might be headed to world superbike at some point here mm-hmm. you know, or world super sport or something like that I, I can't i mean yeah he got the one win but man it's just I don't know. It just there's something. I think it's inside. I, I really think it's upstairs, but I'm, I don't know. What's he doing next year, Jim? Do we do we know? Is he staying put or he's got a ride? I just can't remember with who. Maybe he's staying with the Intel Trans squad. Uh, yeah. He's going to Pond. Isn't he going to Ponds? Oh, okay. Well, we need to check that out. He definitely needs a different team around him. I think. I think that is something. clear. I mean, I was always a little bit surprised when he left the American racing team. To be perfectly frank, mm. I didn't really quite see why that was a good move given that it's a spec bike you know okay okay different teams have a bit more critical mass than others it's you know that's true in terms of sponsorship and experience and if he is going to ponds well that's a very experienced setup so that might be a good place for him to land but things have not gone well since he arrived in that little Italy trans squad i think he replaced bastianini didn't he in that squad memory serves i can't remember 
certainly that's where Bastianini was when he won his championship anyway in Moto2. I mean, the only other things I was going to say, Shane C. Cam, Bobier, Crash, then his yeah. last race in Moto2. That was a shame. He was game. doing, he was going And he was doing it. well. He was you know, doing well. Again, Jim had the flag nearby, just, just, <laughs> just in case. You need to keep <laughs> that thing well out of the way next season, Jim, and then maybe things will take I, a better turn. I'm going to go lock it up in the safe downstairs because honestly, yeah. there's no no reason to bring that puppy out. That yeah. or buy a Spanish flag <laughs> um, for all the wins that Costa's is going to have. As you say, uh, we lost, we didn't mention, but Lopez crashed out. Yes. Which is slightly true. unusual for him. Uh, he was clearly a little bit um, upset with himself, but laughing about it in the pits afterwards. I mean, he's had an absolutely stellar half a season, let's say, because he hasn't been in the season uh, or in the championship of season. But yeah, and then as you said, Canna and Vietti, I mean, what a horror story, really. But I know they get to come back next year and have another crack at it. So, and Moto2 next year, again, there's so many good riders in that squad. And we've got Rory Skinner coming in from the British Superbikes into the American racing team. I assume alongside Sean Dillon Kelly again. Yes, yes. Um, Sean Dillon Kelly has a ride with American racing so team. So, like, I'm glad that SDK has a second season. One season under his belt, knows the tracks knows the setup a bit more around the team and everything else. Showed a few glimpses, I think, Jim, this year at various points of progress, but a low-key yeah. first year, as you could expect, yeah. but needs to do better next year. Yeah, Sean Delacalli won a lot of races in Supersport in the U.S., but it is a big move to a full-on, incredibly stiff, purpose-built race chassis, yeah. and that is where his struggle is right now. But he has Hopper on his side. He knows Spanish fluently because I think he's like a California kid. I know that he speaks Spanish fluently. So there isn't really a language issue there. It's a getting up to speed issue. And uh, there's glimpses of it. So I, I hold out hope, but I don't, not against Agura, Acosta, Marbolino. Those guys are going to be at the front. You know, is there a chance at a podium? Anything can happen. Because right? if he was scoring a top 10 or two next year, that would be good I would progress. be happy there, Jim. yeah. I'd, yeah, yeah. I agree. Just If you could consistently be knocking on top 10, be that 7, 8, 9 guy, maybe. Yeah. Just before we go into MotoGP, Jim, just a little uh -huh. tidbit. Yeah. You mentioned about him coming across from a super sport bike onto a very, very stiff prototype Moto2 mm -hmm. chassis. A little tidbit from Phillip Island. So we had lots of wet and dry races. So they don't do flag to flag in World Superbike. They actually come in and they have a set amount of time to change from a wet tie to a dry or vice versa. Um, and very interestingly, Scott Redding came in to switch from wet to dries. So they changed the wheels and the tyres. But unlike all the other pit stops that I saw where they were busy changing the fork settings on the front to stiffen them up or whatever, I don't know why this didn't happen, but they didn't change Scott Redding's bike in one of the races. So he went out with a pure wet setup on dry tyres and he comes back in at the end of the race and says, that's the best the bike's been all year. Leave it like that. So hmm. interesting, they've been running that bike far too stiff. Some people require a feel on the front. So hmm. if you soften it off, you get that feel back. Just an interesting little tidbit. It's, that's wild. That's wild. I, yeah. I get where he's at. I, I understand what he's, the thought. I mean, it, it depends on where it all is. And you, you get a bike that's really stiff. You can't, you yeah. can't feel what's going on. In it. Conversely, you can get to a bike that's too soft and you have the same problem. Yeah. It's just because marshmallow. We had that, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We had that problem because we were running Dunlaps all the time. And then because of one of the series we were racing was called Glira Great Lakes Road Racing Association. They had some deal with like a local cable TV deal and these races were being shown and stuff, but it was sponsored by Pirelli. That was part of the deal. So you had to be on Pirelli's. As soon as we put Pirelli's on my bike, I, <laughs> I was done because the things are, they're mush. They're, okay. That is not a criticism of Pirelli 
people. <laughs> it just, to me, how it felt compared to a Don felt like mush. You got to yeah. change it a lot. You know, again, I'm no super duper racer, but it took me after having stopped racing, it took me about four years to figure out what was wrong with my bike on Pirelli's. And it's like, if I could gone back four years and changed it, I would have. However, uh, let's, just, let's, let's go to motor. I digress. Yeah. yeah. I, but you're right. You, you are very much right about what happened. And it is an interesting fact. And again, it's stiff chassis and what you have to do for all that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, that's why you see the huge amount of, of I'll call it experimentation in MotoGP with a carbon fiber swing arms versus aluminum. We saw Honda going back and forth. You know, they yeah. had a KLX built one. There's a certain amount of flex that you need and it's a very thin line and it isn't an engineering number that you can calculate. Sure, I could tell you, given a set of forces, where this thing's going to flex, but how much is too much? And the only person who knows is the rider. And that's a human being. And every human being perceives it differently. Yeah, the rider comes on and messes up all the engineer's calcs. Precisely. It's kind of like what happened when Rossi was at Ducati, right? Yeah. The guy who was going to tell you how to fix it all, you didn't listen to him because the numbers and the math told you it should have been this way. Because the guy previous to you, didn't give a shit about the numbers and the math. He just wrote it. Around it, yeah. He didn't care. Oh, anyway. All right. Fun times. Yeah. Uh, MotoGP qualifying. So in the first uh, session, you had Oliveira. You had Paul Sparger, Bezecchi, Rins, and Bastianini. They were all in that first session. Um, Alex Marquez had his bike stop. Halfway through, uh, Rins and Vinales were fast, and Bastianini was right behind them. But when it came down to it, um, Bastianini fell off at turn two. So Vinales and Rins go through to the second uh, round in MotoGP qualifying. Halfway through that session, Martin was out front, followed by Miller, Rins, Quattraro, Miller, Asperger, and Mark Marquez. Miller then crashed because it, it, you could tell that Ducati was trying to get Benyaya out by himself. So they sort of, in, 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 okay, everybody and your brother knows that Marquez is going to go follow Benyaya because he has to have that marker, right? Yeah. And before he needed the marker because, because of his arm, right? Now he needs the marker because the bike that he's on sucks. And, and Marquez admitted, back, <laughs> well, it, it is, I'm a Honda man through and through. Like you yeah. cut me, I'm going to bleed red, maybe orange somewhat too. Uh, orange is red. <laughs> anyway, but it's the truth. You got to say it like it is. And Marquez did. And he, he actually said, you know, Hey, I don't like doing that, but I have to, to get to where I need to be on the grid. So at least Mark came out <laughs> now and said as much as to why, which doesn't not make honest. him the villain. It's very <laughs> honest, honest right? to say it actually. And he said it more than once, didn't he? In recent yes, he times. did. Uh, there's a page coming from the Mick Doohan playbook here about that thing's a piece of crap. <laughs> mm. And you're not listening to me. So guess what? I am going to go talk to these people over here who are going to write about how bad it is. And then you're going to listen to it because you don't want the bad press. So a little I, I, foreshadowing, I think, what's going on. I think. Yes. Yeah. I, one of the, to me, one of the underrated skills of Mark Marquez because and this has been overshadowed in my mind because of how good the Honda had been previously, is how good Marquez is at having a team around him. Him and Sati Hernanda are super tight and they drive everything. And Marquez is, to give you a crossover to Formula One, he's like Schumacher. Simply makes everything better because he's dedicated to, purely dedicated to going fast. Which yeah. on a side note, I <laughs> did not mention this in the news, so I will mention it here. It appears that Amazon Prime has a new series. I don't know if it's, I did not figure out if it's part of the uh, MotoGP Unlimited series or a sub-series, 
but it's Mark Marquez all in. And it's about Marquez's recovery from his bad crash. And David Emmett tweeted it, tweeted the preview out. So if you follow David Emmett on Twitter, go look through his feed. You'll find the link and you can watch it there. But it's kind of amazing. Marquez basically says, when I'm on a motorcycle, I'm a bastard. <laughs> like, well, that's what yeah. it takes, isn't it? What it takes, right? That's what we say. All these guys have got that there. Anyway, uh, where were we? Oh, we were talking about second qualifying until we got diverted yet again by different things. Uh, second qualifying, basically Miller crashed, right? Because they kind of had set, as we said, they kind of set Miller out to let Marquez and everybody else follow him. But then Marquez was able to set a time by himself. Zarco crashed as well. Uh, Quattro ran off because he was pushing that Yamaha to the absolute nth degree. And it wound up being Martin on pole. And I think he just kept going faster. Martin just kept going faster. He's like a pole wizard. He just goes faster and faster and faster. And then Marquez would start second, then Miller, Quattro, Rins, Vinales, and Benya, uh, Bender, sorry, and then Benyaya to start the race. So Benyaya was down, but he holds all the cards in this championship at this point. So there was, you know, you got to think that Quattro had to get the start of his life to get out front. But then again, there's a Ducati that's before him and the guy on a Honda who wasn't going to quit no matter what you decide to do. So, yeah, it was going to be always going to be <laughs> tough from that point. Now, the interesting thing to me in this, and it's a shame that the director of the television show did not show any more of this. But at the green light, Renz came from the third row. <laughs> To lead into the first turn, it was as if Renz had been shot out of a cannon. <laughs> and then he was gone. Renz ran off and led the race from flag to flag, giving Suzuki a win at Phillip Island, unexpected, and giving them a win in their final race before they leave the pit lane. All of which begs the question, <laughs> Rich, you are a Suzuki man through and through. I know if I cut you, you're going to bleed blue. You're a Hamamatsu man. Why is Suzuki leaving? <sighs> I still don't understand, Jim. I'm I not even sure if anybody understands even those that are much closer in the paddock yeah I was just beyond bonkers to me I mean yes let's refer back to the very excellent article that Maddie Scordia wrote back in shortly after the news was announced you know Suzuki of the Japanese factories have always been the ones that appear to be the least invested in MotoGP or possibly even motorbike racing full stop for that matter um lacked a clear kind of sporting strategy it seems you know weren't on top of it with a big brand sponsor a to pick up part of the bill but secondly to sort of create the massive following as well and as she said let's just refer back to the article hrc in MotoGP, what do you think of repsol yamaha what do you think of monster you know and so you go on ktm sort of red but you know so suzuki is their own in-house oil oh, blimey i mean that's, that's a one to keep you awake at night isn't it so yeah i mean they just lacked a lot of direction but for goodness sake they've got arguably the best bike on the grid i mean okay Ducati, suzuki you can have that argument all day long but yeah, to walk away with a bike this good you have to hope that, you know, in the boardrooms in Hamamatsu that they are looking at each other thinking, what have we just done? Because, you know, there's no suggestion that this is a temporary sort of hiatus kind of deal. Yeah, they cited economic troubles, but everybody could have cited that one if they wanted. You know, it's just all this nonsense around sustainability and electric future in most cycles, which, again, we won't get into that again now. But meanwhile, yeah, they're just robbing... A, fans all over the world of two great bikes and it should have been four really because um it wasn't that long ago we were talking about who was going to be the satellite suzuki squad jim was it really if you think about it uh, th that deal almost was done i think and then powers that be decided it wasn't i mean it's their business they can do what they want but for alex rins yeah i mean i you know 
and third on the grid, he thought, right, this is my last chance to win a race for the next few seasons, so I'm going for it. And that's what he did. So, because I don't think we'll be seeing this sort of performance for a little while. Uh, again, which we'll come to in the fullness of time. But beyond that, Jim, I don't have anything more yeah. to say other than just utter, well, I don't know if it's embarrassment on behalf of Suzuki that they can make such a disastrous decision as this. Um, my heart does bleed over this whole situation, really. Yeah, it's a, I do. It's a, it's a motorbike race, you know, it's a sport. It's, you know, nobody's living and dying over that decision, but it just seems so stupid to me to, to quit when you're at the front. But the there you are. Is, That's it. We, I, th- I think this is what you, to me, Rin's doing this is because Renz is healthy. He's he's fully recovered from the, the shoulder he had, yeah. shoulder problem he had in 2020. Uh, I think it was the, yeah, it was the, the, the 2020 because Marquez yeah. destroyed his arm in 2020, right? And it, it's taken, he kind of rode through 2020 that way. 2021 was recovery. He had another crash somewhere in there. Um, Mir has been hurt for a good portion of his foot for the last five races or whatever from Mazzano yeah. mm-hmm. onward. And it's like, good grief, people. Just because you're having a little struggle doesn't mean you just pack it up and go home. I mean, one of the saddest tweets I've seen was Matt Oxley with a picture of the hole in the paddock where the Suzuki equipment was. And it's not just that, hey, Rins and Mir don't have a ride well, i mean they do but it isn't because of that it's like think of the people the catering the cooks the chefs the trucks the guys who drive the trucks crew in general that work on the bikes uh, the pr staff uh so someone doing logistics uh, you, you, the list is on and on and yeah. the number of people and that's before you get into supply chain correct right yeah. who don't who don't have a job as a result of your decision not to go race a motorcycle, fine. You hold up the purse strings. You are entitled to say, I'm going to go or I'm going to stay or whatever it is that I'm going to do. But it's just, it hurts no matter. I know we've debated this endlessly. We mustn't go on about it for too much longer, I suppose. But what I find really very, very curious is that Dorna run the Moto E series. So they're covering to some extent, you know, the electrification aspect and they're trying to make a spectacle of that. And the Moto E is not a bad thing to watch. Don't get me wrong. Some of the races have been quite good. I've watched a few of them, not all of them, but I've watched a few and they've been quite entertaining in their own way. But it's not that Suzuki are getting out of MotoGP because there's no sign of progress on the sustainability front because we're going fully sustainable fuels in, mm-hmm. from, well, I think the plan is from 2020. Five. Five, yeah. Marquez tested the alternative fuels. Correct, yes. The green, the green fuel. Correct. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, whatever. However it's done, it's a sort of chemistry lesson, which we don't need to go into. <laughs> certainly not here. You know, so Dawn are covering off the fact that, you know, they got an electric series. Suzuki could have bid to take part in that if they wanted to. Ducati have got the contract now. And MotoGP is clearly going for the sort of sustainability angle for its own, not selfish interest, because you have to stay relevant and you have to keep pushing forward in these areas so i don't really see that suzuki are getting out on kind of uh, ethical grounds if i can phrase it like that the, the the sport is living in the past it's doing damage it's going in the wrong directions i don't think any of those things are particularly true not in the regulations anyway and, and equally suzuki are not getting out because they just can't bloody win a race you know they're throwing all this money in and they just can't get it to work well they won the championship two years ago and they've just won the last two of the last what three races so mm. um yeah curious Curious. it is curious i mean and they made this decision early on it wasn't like they just said you know three races ago hey we're leaving yeah it was a whole year we knew this was coming right or 
a good portion of the year. They announced that decision when, I mean, Rins was, I think, second or third in championship at that point. Though Suzuki or X-Star Suzuki team were leading the team's championship at that point because Mira yeah. and Rins were banking good points in that early part of the season. They didn't come out of the blocks quite as fast in terms of race wins as I think we thought that they would from testing. But yeah, so the bosses at Suzuki have their reasons and we don't really know what they are. And it's just a great shame for the championship, really. Underlined by that photo that Matt Oxley put out, as you say, Jim, big hole yeah. in the paddock where the Suzuki team used to be. Yep. All right. Well, that's that's enough of that sad story. I, we yeah. pondered on enough. Uh, so as it starts out, uh, Miller got a little roughed up at the beginning of the race because um, Rins blew out to the start. He get in, you know, Martin was right there. Then Marquez, uh, Quattro, Miller, who got who was getting roughed up. I mean, Miller was getting stood up corner after corner as everybody was battling for they wanted to be. But the the first I call it the first four laps of the Quattro Benyaya battle was insane. I think Quattro lost some part of his winglet off the Yamaha as they bashed fairings back and forth. It did some damage to the Ducati. I don't know if it was as much as what had happened to the Yamaha. So like the like the left winglet came off. I think of the Yamaha. Uh, the right wing of the, the of Benyaya's Ducati was gone. <laughs> you know, it was like, oh man, this is this is going down to the death here. You know, <laughs> between these two guys. But again, with the points lead that Benyaya had, he really could have just followed Quattararo around, and he was going to be world champion. But Paul Spargaro crashed. Aleish brought his bike into the pits. They Aprilia just fell off from the Asia swing. They just. Uh, lost the plot and i yeah. i'm not sure if it was one of these hey we're not where we're supposed to be and suddenly like everybody was like oh well, we, we have to really perform and you sort of become a little you become italian and you hand wave and the organization doesn't really work right uh, i don't know but something was there the wheels fell off from the flyaways onwards didn't they really did. again we're conscious of time but we did have this discussion, Jim. I think Aprilia just not in this position where they even thought they'd be in the position to be fighting for a championship. And it takes a few seasons of being under that organisational stress to actually get used to it and to deal with it. And I think they just yeah lost the plot a bit towards the end, which is not a criticism. It's just they were doing way better than anybody, including us, what they were going to do. Yep, that's uh, that's how it went. Um, you know, a pole crash, so he's done with the Honda. Probably did it in the most ceremonious way he could. He threw it down the road. But I suppose he's grinned all year. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, Alex Marquez crashed as well. Renz, as we said, ran off on this one and was gone. Marquez himself fell off, which he fell off at uh, at eight, which showed you how hard he was riding to keep that pick of a motorcycle uh, even close, which was fascinating, to be honest with you. The good thing is he just, he didn't, he, I don't say it's a good thing, but you got to believe that the arm is not the problem at all because he fell and didn't even try to, tuck it under, put it somewhere to, to guard against anything happening to it. That's fully gone. He picked a bike up with his right arm uh, in, where were they? Thailand, I think. So if you don't believe Marquez's arm's fully healed, you are sadly mistaken. It is. So it's the bike and not the kid riding it. So uh, Honda needs to get that straight. We'll talk about that in a minute or two. Oliveira and Bender had a good run on the KTMs. They sort of came to the front. Bender, we know, as a Sunday man. If we could make him a Saturday guy and a Sunday man, we would probably see a little bit more uh, KTM podium action for him. But again, things look like KTMs are actually going someplace. They're figuring things out. And hey, this is a little harder than what you thought it was kind of a thing yeah. as well. Zarco crashed. I mean, Zarco, he has like great beginning of a year and Zarco is like the Vietti of Moto GP, right? He just starts yeah. crashing. Yeah, yeah. But Zarco is... Delinia's favorite test rig 
So there yeah. could have been stuff on the bike that was stuff for development for the 2023 bike. We don't know. So basically, Benyaya basically rides home to win the championship. I should denote that Miller fell off at turn one, and that happened. Bender actually got past uh, Martin near the end of the race to finish off. It was like uh, with five to go, uh, two to go, Bender had got by. Honestly, I feel like if Bender had started better, right, qualified better, right? Okay, started from a better position on the grid is the more proper way to say that. He may have won. May another lap or two, I think he would have been. might have been there. I, we don't know how much Renz used up the tire, and we know the Suzuki is very gentle on it. I think Renz had something in hand for him, or just the fact that Renz won at this one because he kind of really felt like that when, when Renz got into the park for May and the helmet came off, he won at this. Yeah. So I don't know if Bender had that much gumption to really go after him, but it was an interesting last little bit that Bender was. Close, right? The last two laps were a bit touch and go as to who was going to win, put it that way. And we didn't see it. Well, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the, you, we followed Benyaya the whole way. Yeah, I get it. Okay. So that being said, let's look at where everybody finished. A couple of thoughts at the end of this, then we'll do testing. Uh, Renz, Bender, Martin, that is your podium. Quattrara, Oliveira, and Mir. So two KTMs in the top five. I think that's the first time that's happened. It's a while, certainly, yeah. <laughs> if it hasn't happened before, it was a long time ago, right? Uh, Mir, sixth, then Marini, Bastianini, Benyaya, and Morbidelli. Basically, congratulations to Benyaya. He is the first man to win the MotoGP championship on a Ducati since 2007. Casey Stoner and what Bob Hayes has always said was the perfect storm of a, of a Bridgestone tire mm-hmm. and Ducati together. Now Ducati has won again. However, it is some four or five years uh, since Gigi Delinia was given an open checkbook and a blank check to go get that title for Ducati. It has taken that time. Yeah. Uh, Benyaya becomes the first person to have five DNFs and overcome a 91-point deficit to win a MotoGP World Championship. Quite impressive. I think that's uh, pretty amazing. Our largest comeback in the history of the sport, uh, 15 years after Stoner won a Ducati. Benyaya also was the first VR46 Academy rider to win a MotoGP World Championship. First Italian to win a MotoGP World Championship since the guy who founded the Academy won Valentino Rossi. And on top of it all, Benyaya won a Moto3 title on a number bike number 21. He won a Moto2 title on a bike number 43. And if you add those two numbers together, you get the <laughs> 63 that's on Benyaya's bike right now. Uh, just kind of interesting because that was his whole theme and his whole victory celebration was. The... Yeah, it was pretty cool seeing the other bikes. Yeah, it, it was, was good. Yeah, the other bike. good. So that's everything from there. Uh, Quattro, I thought, was tremendously gracious in his the loss. I, you know, Quattro is a sensible individual. He knows it's there. I think he also knows that. Hey guys, we got a really good Yamaha that's coming. So I think he feels comfortable in having signed an extension to be with Yamaha. Yeah, and I think Jim. I mean, I've listened to a few podcasts during the travels and so on post Valencia. Um, and maybe this is something we'll do on the off season. Perhaps some of the, uh, the listeners want to throw in a few ideas on this one as well. But if you were to create a sort of top 10 riders of 2022 in each category, mm-hmm. I think in MotoGP, there isn't going to be too much debate around saying that Quattro was the best rider this season. He was just a gunfight with a knife most of the year. Yeah, oh yeah. He's a very gracious in defeat. He did lose it reasonably comprehensively in terms of how the last quarter of the season went not Yamaha he had tracks. extracted <laughs> everything that he possibly could out of himself and out of that bike and it oh, came yeah. up short in the end but it wasn't for lack of trying or lack of skill on his part because i think 
as I say, I think pound for pound, he was the rider of the year. Easily the rider of the year. Yeah. To me, comeback rider of the year when Mark Marquez. Yeah. He went for one more surgery at the last chance saloon and it fixed it. Yeah. And he's still crazy enough to go fast. That's a discussion we'll get into during the offseason, isn't it? About the respective strengths and weaknesses of the various riders. Because there's been some real standout riders this yeah. year uh, and a few that have disappointed. Yeah. It's true. We'll make that an off-season show because I, I kind of want to have a season review, but I only talk about the riders and put them in the order we think they should have been. Yeah. Um, if you guys want to help with that, Email us, motopod at motopodcast.com. Give us each one, Moto3, Moto2, MotoGP. Give us your top 10. doesn't have to be the way that points champs. Just uh, they're doing on what you thought was the best rider. Yeah, just give us the, the, your top 10 and a one-sentence or two-sentence rationale for each one to back up why you think that, and we'll do the yep. same. We That'll are. be an interesting show. Yep, that's going to be the next show, I think, is we'll do that just to cap off the season. And work on other things. Okay, let's talk about testing now. Yeah. I mean, we know what we know what happened and everything else. Let's talk about testing. First thing in testing, Mark Marquez is not happy with the Honda. He called them out. He called them out big time. He called them out so bad that people started speculating that he was going to leave after next year. I'm like, come on, people. Oh, good grief. No. Again, I said this earlier. I'll say it again. It's the McDoin tactic, right? McDoin didn't like where Honda was going with the bikes. And McDoin started talking about what, what was wrong with the bike to the public. He was brutally honest about that. Marquez even had to quell everybody's rumor gossip because he had to come back out and go, look, guys, I'm not, I've won with Honda. I'm going to stay with Honda. They're the, I'm go- we're going to win again. Again, he starts doing this team thing then right we are you know there's a lot more we there always was we with mark marquez okay let's be honest but now there's a lot more we in fact to be honest that test was so poor that they packed up early and left well he tested everything that he felt he could and came out as you say early in the day and said we we as you say jim (laughs) cannot win on this bike as in the championship next year yep now i'm sure that uh, as Taking your McDoin reference, a healthy amount of that is just a bit more of a kick up the arse to mm-hmm. HRC back in Japan to keep pushing super, super hard. Nevertheless, I think there's probably a decent element of truth in what he said in that he was disappointed with that prototype bike for next season. I don't know if it was a full next year's bike straight out of the box or whether it was this year's bike with some big development parts on it. Not too sure. Uh, I mean, it was obviously the picture was muddied by the fact you had Rins and Mia riding Hondas for the first time. So you've got the acclimatisation deal to get over there. Nobody wants to head into the winter with a broken leg. So this Valencia test, I always think, is a bit of a tricky one to judge at the best of times. And then I can't remember if Nakagami was out riding or not, because he's been back in under the knife with that finger that he damaged so badly in Aragon. So very hard to draw any conclusions with Honda other than the fact that they got what Jackie Stewart used to call when Ken Tyrrell gave him a dressing down. He used to call it a froth job. <laughs> I think <laughs> Ken Tyrrell used to spit all over him and he was raging. Um, yeah, so Mark gave, Mark gave HLC a bit of a froth job in the afternoon of the test to say this isn't good enough. No, it's not. Uh, without wishing to be too conspiratorial, his brother is now riding a Ducati. And whilst I'm sure that they'll be professional about the way they go about things, they are very close brothers, those two, and it's inconceivable to me that there won't be some information about how bloody good that Ducati is coming across to Mark Marquez and him thinking, hmm, let's just go and look at the brake clauses in my contract again. You never know. You never know. Yeah, I don't... Okay, maybe, right? I don't think Ducati wants the non-harmony. Right now, everybody's all harmonious, right? The outlier in that is Martin, but Martin can't seem to stay on a bike, right? Mm. You put Marquez in there, and I think you got a problem. And I think if Mark is going to leave a team and leave Honda, 
I, I don't think he will. Okay. Let's speculate. Say if he does, I can't believe that Pitt buyer isn't going to throw some huge money, some huge Red Bull money at him to say, look, come over here and let's do it on this bike. Swap orange for maybe an orange. Mm-hmm. Right. That was always talked about that KTM always wanted him. Marcus's contract, as in Mark Marcus's contract, Jim, goes up to the end of 25, is it? He is this le- no, I know. I think it ends at the end of this year because he signed a four year deal that began, or he's got 24. Yeah. Because I think he signed a, the four year deal. It was a long deal, wasn't it? It was kind of like an unprecedented deal right. when he signed it. I think he signed it at the end of 19. So it's covered 20, 21, 22, 23, yeah. and 24. So, right. So he's got a yeah. bit of time to go on that contract. If he wants to see it through or he can't get out of it, even if there is a better offer on. But I mean, let's bear in mind that when he signed that contract, he was on arguably the best bike or he was, it was good enough that with him on it as well, it was the it best. Pack- be close. It was the best package. Yeah. And that's quite clearly not the case now. Have you ever known a Honda to be the best bike? They aren't. <laughs> look, go back through and look at history. They have not been the best bike. They happen to be a package that's good enough with a man who's incredibly talented to win on top of it. I give you Freddie Spencer. I'll give you Mick Doohan. There's the one off with Wayne Gardner. Nothing against Wayne. Wayne rode that bike. Fantastic. Eddie Lawson did it one time, right? It's always been the guy. It's the package, the two things together that's just good enough. Because if you look throughout history, all those Honda guys that have won championships, they didn't have a teammate that was finishing second or third or fourth, right? They yeah. had somebody who was so far down the grid. And they were on top of it. The one exception I must point out must be though the 2003 through to 2006 Honda RCV when Rossi was on it for his first few seasons when we went four stroke. I mean, that was head and shoulders the best bike out there. I'll give you that one. Just for a few seasons. uh, And then Yamaha caught up once, particularly once Rossi arrived there with Burgess. Yeah. Take your point. Anyway, I mean, to come back to the test, Marquez was either doing a very good job of acting like a very unhappy angry man or he was a very unhappy angry man <laughs> either way I probably either aware way. both yeah. we're honest but honda need to do better when they turn up at the next test which is in sepang is it weren't they having a test in sepang and a test in mandalika too they certainly did this year i thought they were doing that again but i don't, yeah. I don't... I, we'll I need to fail to understand out. exactly we'll, we'll get the right details on. Yeah. all right enough about honda i think that's obvious um yamaha Quattraro was not a happy camper. He was a very happy camper with that 2023 motor uh, that was that they had at Mazana, right? He was like, mm-hmm. yeah, hey, hey, kind of a thing. And then he get he gets here and it's like, um, guys, what happened to the power? Mm-hmm. No one seems to know where the power went. Like, like the team's going like, oh, it's like the same motor we had. Now, is it an aerodynamic thing? Like, did the aerodynamic upgrades that they have put more drag on it so that that motor feels just as bad as the other motor? I don't know. Does it the Valencia circuit itself? It's a very tight and twisty, so you're not, you know, no, no one seems to know. I do think that Yamaha are going to improve and improve significantly if they can figure out where the horsepower went. They're apparently they've got some ex Formula One guy who helped Aprilia to make their motor really good. Uh, apparently they're probably going to go back to him again and say, look what happened. Well, I'm sure that they're not dumb people. They're going to be able to figure out what happened and they're going to be fine. Quattraro on a bike that has even five to 10 more horsepower is going to be a dangerous and deadly combination. That's for sure. Provided it doesn't screw up other aspects of the bike, (laughs) make the bike so good. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think Yamaha's are, 
I, I just think they have way better chassis because throughout time, it's always been the chassis. It's done really well. And mm. you can add horsepower to a good chassis and still have a good chassis. Um, it's when you get into the idea of like, I've got a lot of horsepower that now either flexes that chassis or it comes on strong and abrupt. And now it makes the chassis want to wiggle or flex or the tires become different, right? That kind yeah. of thing yeah. that you get in, you get into those flaky situations. Again, hopefully Yamaha has everything solved there with that one. I think, Jim, because yeah. it's Morbidelli, let's remember there's only two Yamahas now. So yes, Morbidelli was quick. Morbidelli but, yeah, but quicker. he was saying the same thing about the strangeness of what had happened with the engine so the few things i've read or looked at to sort of track this down clearly nobody outside the yamaha knows always going to find out i think the speculation was that somebody probably plugged in the wrong maps to this thing perhaps or yeah. something like that which had changed the engine characteristic a one-day test it's not as if they could sort it out overnight once they diagnosed it and then come out the next day full chat because it was a yeah. one-day test you know this absurd situation right. that we have virtually no testing now so everything has to be a magneti morelli system mm-hmm Right, to keep the traction control and everything all at bay. Okay. My question is, is that I wonder if they were running a magnetic Morelli system and that test it was on him. There's no rule that says that you have to, as far as I know. Now, I could be wrong, and I'm fully willing to admit that I'm wrong and I don't know. But if Yamaha just threw a motor in there and whatnot, you can see conceivably where, hey, well, we missed something. I'm just something went wrong speculating I mean, uh, yeah, yeah something clearly was not right there and yeah. both riders you know called them out knew it and and, and quadraro was having just lost his championship again much like the bloke on the orange bike up the pit lane was not looking particularly happy about things but mm-hmm. if it's a sort of a, a logistical glitch in the way the yeah. bike was set up or the engine was set then they, they like i think it's solved. that yeah i'm, I, I I'm sure it's... yeah because they were saying we haven't changed the engine it's the same engine as we had in Mizano. Yeah, we've changed the software around certain aspects of how the engine works. So that, it had to be something like that, I guess. You know, go back to the settings you had in it it Mizano and see what happens in Sepang. I think we, unlike last year, we have much, and they have much, importantly they, have much more reason to be hopeful and excited yes. about next year, certainly than was the case 12 months ago. So that's, I think, good news for the championship. I mean, we, we don't want sort of Quattro just running away all year at the front. Yes. Uh, let's move to Ducati. Nothing really new there other than the 2022 bikes were all out front. Yeah. Uh, so you got to believe that they're the people who, who have those bikes are going to be fast at the beginning of the year. Yeah. I'm just looking forward to Bastion. just throwing them. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Bastion is going to be a little difficult for uh, Ben Yaya to handle, I think, on equal equipment. Gigi's little bag of tricks, I think, will come out in the first test next year yeah, so something. that the competition don't have the winter to think, oh, God, are we going to replicate that? So they were never going to show anything too magical at this Valencia test just gone. I mean, it might be that they don't have anything new particularly sort of wizardry be finished yet. To, to bring to the bike next year even. I mean, it's, it's the best bike on the grid now that the Suzuki's gone. Yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, and that was very much flexed in the times. I haven't got them in front of me, but Marini was quickest. He's been on the 22 bike all year. Bezeki was up to the 22 bike. So again, just to recap, so that everybody knows, next year the works team will have 2023 spec bikes as will the Pramac Ducati team as well, I think. And then everybody else is on a 22 bike. Yep. Everybody else is on, so the Grassini and the VR46. So Bezeki was third quickest, I think. So there was a lot of Ducatis at the front, as, as we would fully expect. Um, and that is the best part. So they didn't really need to bring anything too much to this test anyway. Banyaya himself, world champion, probably was still nursing a bit of a hangover. Hopefully got a lift home this time. Um, 
<laughs> without wishing to be too controversial. I'm sure you called a taxi this time around. So probably wasn't too bothered about setting fast times anyway. So the Valencia test is always a bit of a tricky one, really, because it's the end of the season. Everybody's tired. They just want to go home. They've had the Sunday night gala thing, so they're all probably nursing hangovers a bit. So, yeah, uh, not too much to draw into it. So nothing really to talk about beyond that with Ducati Gym. KTM. Looks like they didn't have a 2023 bike there, but they had parts and pieces that they were taking on and off of Bender's bike. Yeah, Bender looked okay. Fernandez was getting acclimated, so I don't think we can really ask too much of him for that one, right? Yeah, had a steady run, did a lot of laps, didn't fall off. I mean, that's that's a good first day. That's all you want. The yeah. Tech 3 bikes, Pole had, was back home on a KTM. He looked happier, but it didn't. He didn't set the world on fire with it. That's for sure. No, but looked very, very happy to be back on that bike. Probably yep. thinking, why the hell did I leave in the first place? But anyway, uh, yeah. And then his Paul's teammate at Tech Three. Uh, well, we must call it Gas Gas now, mustn't we, Jim? Yes. But, I'm sorry. Yeah. So it's Paul and Augusto Fernandez in that Augusto team, Fernandez, and then Binder, yes. and so Miller. Uh, had his first run out on the KTM. KTM, yep. I haven't seen anything that he said about that. I haven't either. It's very quiet. All of these riders, or most of these riders, are contractually gagged from talking to the press if they've moved teams. Yeah, because their contracts run calendar year. So they're yeah. actually still contracted. to. In Miller's case, he's still contracted to Ducati until December 31st. Yeah, and Miller's even been out racing a, uh, a Ducati in Australian Superbike this weekend. Yeah, as, as he did last year as a sort of a sign off thing because he just likes to ride bikes miller i mean you gotta love the guy yeah, yeah. so uh, i mean even jan mir and alex rins on the hondas were uh, not allowed to talk to the press even though they're contractually still bound to suzuki who are no longer in the sport which is uh interesting because you didn't need them to step into a microphone and say anything all you had to do is look at their faces and realize like <laughs> no. they this is going to be way harder than what we thought. <laughs> no wonder the guy down there is at the press conference is screaming at these people to fix this because uh, yeah. it's junk. Not only was I, uh, you know, a huge Suzuki MotoGP fan, uh, as we've said many times, and you always point out, Jim, I'm a big Alex Rins fan, but I mm. really fear for him on the Honda. I, I really do. You know, my dream team was in that RNF Aprilia squad was Alex Rins and Miguel Oliveira. If those two and guys have been on that it. team, they might well be beating the works team. Yeah. But unfortunately, I think, oh, I'm being a bit unfair perhaps to HRC, but that is just not a great bike at the moment. And um, they got some great riders on it. Mm. So can they turn turn it back into a great bike? Time will tell. But I think Rins is going to find life pretty tough because he was known for having front-end difficulties at Suzuki at various points of his life there, even on the Suzuki. Uh, well, the Honda is not well known to be a bike that tolerates anything other than a very, very extreme front end style, which is why the conventional wisdom is that Mir will probably do okay on it because he's quite a front endy guy, but in a way that he breaks. Whereas I think yeah. Rins is more of a sort of a conventional kind of like the old 250cc style, lots of going quick. Uh, so yeah, we'll see. We'll see. And so that leaves us only with Aprilia. And so the king of testing reappeared because Vinales was like the quickest guy out there. Yeah. Gary Shavit would have been punching the air with Vignales yeah, uh, sure getting second place in the test, you know. Yeah, world <laughs> champion. Know, Gary probably just smacks his head and like, what? <laughs> uh, you know, nothing to play for, and what happens? It's crazy. I I don't yeah. understand. It's. I, I think if Maverick doesn't win a few races next season, I hope Aprilia starts to question why he's there. Well, not hope, but I think they they must start to question why he's there because he's so notorious for turning up at the weekend saying I can win this race and then just vanishing from trace when the when the green lights come on 
Yeah. Very hard to fathom, really, as a rider, Maverick Pinales. But I mean, he's very quick, as he shows, as he shows regularly, but he just doesn't do it at the right time. I think the headline was Oliveira in fourth, first run out on the again. It's the sort of the end of year developed bike from Aprilia, so it's a it's a well sorted package. Even though they had a bit of a mare, as we were discussing towards the end of the season, performance wise, but the bike itself is very good and very quick. And he yeah, he stuck it after I think seventy ish laps, something like that, close to the fourth quickest time. Now again, we were saying you can't read too much into this test you know the real action starts next year but that was a very encouraging start for Oliver, and i think he's going to be absolutely stupendous on that bike i really really do to the extent that i actually tweeted back to simon patterson when he was talking about it i, I think Oliver is a championship contender next year now simon patterson tweeted me straight back and said um satellite riders don't win championships that's correct and historically that is correct but if Oliver is beating the works guys and he's got a shot, you know, it would be he's interesting be to see what Aprilia would do in that situation. I think, weird prediction. I figure by summer break, Vinales is going to the RNF squad and Oliver is going to the factory <laughs> squad. Well, I think he's going to cause them that happy problem in terms of what do we do with this guy? Unless he goes really badly wrong, but, you know, Oliver is a quality rider and has shown it on occasion at KTM, but has been on a bike that perhaps didn't quite suit his style and couldn't perhaps he just couldn't ride around certain things like Binder does on a Sunday. But yeah. he's going to be very, very good on that, Aprilia, I think, and definitely one to watch in terms of the top five in the championship. That's my prediction. You never know, man. He might wind up winning the first round. Of, well, not a first round, isn't that guitar? It's no. Portugal. It's uh, in yes, Portugal. It's in Portimao. So, <laughs> you, you can see Oliveira winning in Portugal and getting off the bike going, I can win a championship on this, like one Mr. Bastianini. Stranger things have happened. Stranger things have happened. Yeah, because, um, yeah, the, the, the beginning of the season is all shook up because we start in Portimao, we head to Argentina, and then we come to Texas. Yeah. Uh, that's everything from testing that we have. So I think that's it. Again, Tell us your top 10 riders in the class, a little blurb, why you think they should be where they are. Again, it's not about points. It's about the skill and how they rode. Rich and I will see what we'll have our own list. We'll compare everybody's in the next show, which will be probably maybe a couple of weeks before we get to that. I'm traveling for work uh, next week and maybe the week after. So mm -hmm. uh, be a little tough for Rich and myself to get together on that one. But we will come back again with the show. When we get another show out, we'll tweet, let you guys know. Uh, a lot of things in the works, guys. Uh, we just got to try to make it happen. And uh, we'll have some good off-season shows, hopefully, and if things work out. And yep. with that... Remember, Rich and I are both available on uh, Instagram and Twitter. I'm at MotoRGV, and he's at Richard Jowett. And you yep. can give us a follow and communicate with us that way if you want to. And Absolutely. that is everything. So until we see you in probably a couple of weeks, give us yep. a little break here. Just before Christmas, let's say, yeah. Yeah, definitely touch. We'll definitely have a show before Christmas, and then we'll be right around in the new year, hopefully with some really cool stuff. And with that, I will say, as always, to ride safe. Cheers, everyone.